I'd like for you to open your Bibles again this morning to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12. The joy that is set before us, part two. That's the title of what I'm saying today. A couple of weeks ago, we spoke on the joy that was set before Jesus. Talking about the things that Jesus had to face. He had to face a cross, the shame of the cross, a life of being rejected, and much opposition in his life, an uncomfortable life to say the least, but it was worth the prize that he got at the end because it was the securing of salvation for man, of being restored to the throne of with his father, of seeing the possibility and the coming together of what we call the church. He's the chief cornerstone and he in the midst of the church is the one the church will focus on and praise and he knew that this would be the glory that would bring the end of the earth, that would bring about the end when we all come to the unity of the faith and so forth. So he was willing to do that. He had a price he had to pay, but he was willing to do it. It says it in beginning in verse one, wherefore seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. And then he says, you have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. It begins with what he did, and then it turns to us. Let us run with patience the race that is set before us. There is a prize to be gained. There is something that awaits those who do it. Not everybody will run this race. Not everybody is running this race. I'm talking about in Christendom. But for those that do, and for those who finish their course, as Paul spoke of in 1 Corinthians 9, where he spoke of a race. For those who finish their course, and who in this life pay the price, and don't turn back, but press on, there's a wonderful and a great reward that awaits those. Now, how badly people want that depends on how they read this, what God says to them, how cluttered their lives are with business and things in this world and how much of self they're willing to get out of the way so they can pursue God. It all depends. But the message is clear, that God has something for us, but it's going to cost us to get it. But when you get it, the joy that you will experience is beyond your comprehension right now. I said this the last time, one of the joys set before us is heaven. Remember Luke 10, 20, where Jesus said, rejoice not that demons are subject unto you or that you have spiritual power, but he said, rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Now, I don't know how many people do that. The very fact that God chose you to salvation and your name is written in a book because he caused you to come to him to repent of your sins and ask to be saved. The angels rejoiced in heaven and God wrote your name in a book. That means you're secured. 
I don't know how many people really rejoice about that because we're given in this age and in this hour, as the Bible predicted, to a lot of complaining and a lot of bickering and fighting and a lot of heady, high-minded, dishonest, untrustworthy people everywhere. But there's going to be some, somebody's going to rejoice. We're going to rejoice because set before us is, is the promise that God will prepare us for heaven because we can't prepare ourselves. Remember Jude 24 said, He will present you before the throne of His grace Faultless? Can you imagine? Can you imagine when you take you, you know what kind of person you are, you know how you live, you know what your aspirations are. Can you imagine taking you and setting you before yourself and say, when God gets through with you, there will be no faults, no spots, no wrinkles, no flaws. You will be perfect. In this life, before you get there, he will perfect you. We honestly do have a hard time with that, but he will do this or else the Bible's misleading us because he said he will present you without fault. He said in Ephesians 5 that he would sanctify, separate, set apart, and cleanse his church, how? With the washing of water by the word that he may present to himself this glorious church without spot or wrinkle or any such thing in your life. Now again, if that kind of work is being done in all of us, it'll be evident, but if it's not being done, then we're losing, we're missing, because that's the work that God does. God is truly at work in you to do His will, to make you the kind of person He wants you to be, so that on Judgment Day, He can say to you, well done. Thou good and faithful servant. Because he can't say that to people who haven't even given their lives over to his way. He can't do that. They will have to be judged. He will make me understand his ways in this life. This is a joyful thing. You remember in James 1 it says, count it all joy knowing. God will so teach you and instruct you and so bring you into his way that when bad things or ugly things or circumstances pop up, you won't dread it and run from it and be afraid of it because you know that there's a reason for this. There's something behind this. Knowing this, that the testing of your faith produces endurance and so forth. So it's good to know that in this world, he not only is gonna perfect me, but he's gonna help me to know and understand his ways while I'm here so that I won't lose heart, faint as he spoke, or be wearied and quit. Because I know that there's more to this than what's just happening here. There's a goal. There's something that he's going to bring forth. And not everybody realizes that either. I think there's a great joy set before us this morning because God has given us his own faith. The faith of Christ. He's given it to you. Didn't the Bible say he's the author and finisher, which means perfecter? If he's the author of our faith, where did our faith come from? Who is it patterned after? then you know it works because it's already been proven. And that's in you. And he's given that to you. Now, whether or not you're exercising that, releasing that faith, using it, I don't know. You know. But it's there. It's there for his own people. And by that faith, they can triumph daily. Because I can do all things 
through Christ in this life. I won't need to say that when I get to heaven. I need it right now. And that's one of the joys I have. That's why we have confidence and peace and hope in this life is because God has given us something, not only that has secured us to him, that we relate to him with, but also that works in the wars and the battles down here that we fight. The victory that overcomes the world is even our faith. And you resist the devil steadfast in your faith. Peter, I prayed for you that your faith fail not. And on and on and on. So it's a wonderful thing to know that God has given you something of himself that is one of the attributes that he has, his faithfulness. That's in you too. And you can do all things through Christ. Now, this morning, let's go to, again, back to verses 1, 2, 3. And let me point out something in verse 1 that we want to begin with. Wherefore, seeing we're compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Now, the idea of Christianity being compared to a race is common in Christian circles. The last few verses of 1 Corinthians 9, Paul speaks of a race and what you have to do to run the race. A runner in a race, those of you that have run, you know that if you run all the time, you've got to pay a price. Your body works best when you condition it, when you take care of it, when you feed it properly, and you're in control of it. It just works better. You deny yourself certain things, staying up too late, eating certain foods, running around. You deny those things because you know that in the race that I have to run tomorrow, that's going to adversely affect me. So the race is so important for me to win that I'm not going to do a lot of things that everybody else does because I can't perform my best and do that. But now we're not in a literal race like racing each other somewhere. Race is what the Christian life is. God chose you to live a certain way and to obtain a certain prize. He tells us about it. He shows us what it is. He said, I'll be with you. I will help you. I will enable you. There's no temptation bigger than you are. I will provide. I'll never leave you. He gives us all the assurances that we can make it, that we can do what he wants us to do. Now, it's not that everybody really believes that and does it, but you can. It's there. And the Christian life has its struggles, just like the cross. We got a cross. And this race that we're in, that we're compelled to win, what are we competing against? Well, mostly self. Everything that the devil can use, and that's only self, the only thing about me the devil can use is self. And the devil keeps trying to keep it alive. Temptations, allurements, weaknesses. The writer knew that. He said, you got to lay aside everything that keeps you from running right. This is a big deal. The Christian life is to be lived on Christ's terms. It's not for you to think of all the good things you ought to do. It's for you and I to listen to what God says and to learn his way. Like the psalmist said, teach me thy way, O Lord, that I may run the race on thy terms. That's not what it says. That I may walk in thy truth. But that's what the race is about. 
We're not called just to meet on Sundays and Wednesdays and have a religious meeting and assume that that's the race and then live normal, everyday, like the world lives the rest of the week. That's not what we're called to do. We've been called out of that. We've all lived that way. We know what it's like we call out of that. The residue of that life is still keeping us weak and we gotta get rid of the stuff we brought in. It has to go. The mind has to be renewed. We have to focus on things that God wants us to focus on. This race is a race you must be willing to win. There's a certain soberness that comes when you realize that, that a lot of people start running and they don't finish, they get distracted and they don't make it. It doesn't come to good ends. It doesn't work out. It was Jesus who said that we should enter in at the straight gate. Remember that in the Sermon on the Mount, entering at the straight gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many there be that go in thereat. There's nothing easy about this. There was nothing easy about the cross that Jesus went to. Nothing easy. Christian life is not designed to be easy. Everybody in a social attitude wants an easy way. There is no easy way. Everything in this world is against you. There is no easy way. It is with difficulty. Remember in Acts 14 and verse 22, Paul said that we must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom. Then we're going to have tribulation. Now folks, the problem is when man thinks that tribulation is unnecessary, that he doesn't need that and that he can avoid that by making an adjustment. But the adjustment is not God's way, it's a wrong way. Remember what the Bible said twice in Proverbs, there is a way that seemeth right unto man. Churches all over the country on every corner are offering a way. And I'm not saying they're all wrong. I'm not saying that we're right and they're wrong and so forth. I'm just saying that there is a lot of different ideas that are presented to man that avoids trouble and avoids tribulation. Truth of the matter is you can't walk in the steps of Jesus without being attacked by the same devil that attacked him. And when you are attacked because of him, it's called the sufferings of Christ in your life. And you've got to be willing to put up with that and endure that and go through that because that's gonna happen in this life. And you must be willing to pay the cost. But once again, there is a reward at the end of this life. Now, two things are mentioned in verse one that are essential. If you want to finish this course, realize a good end to your life. Face an encouraging moment on the other side of the veil because everybody knows you're gonna die one day or be here when Jesus comes. If you wanna make sure when you leave this life, when your last breath is breathed, when your moment in time comes, it is appointed and the man wants to die. You wanna make sure that whatever, how soon that the next begins, and I don't know, I'm over my head. I just know that one of these days when you die, something else then begins to happen. And as the Bible says, there is a life that is eternal, eternal life, and there is a joy that is attached to that life. 
and there is a joyous expression from God that says, enter into the joys of the Lord. Now, I want that. Now, it's easy to say I want that, but it's an entirely different thing to live like you want that because there are obstacles. He just mentioned a couple things here. He said, lay aside every weight. You see the word weight? And the sin that doth so easily beset us. You have to do that in order, as he continues the sentence, to run the race. The word patience, we'll get to in a minute, it has to do with more of endurance and steadfastness than it does patience. You don't win a race by patience, you win a race by endurance. You hold on, you hang in. But it's so easy to give up. It's so easy to look for another way where you don't have to struggle and strive against sin and against weakness. It's so easy. We're told, first of all, in verse 1, let us lay aside. Listen to me. You'll never lay aside anything that's not good if you don't want to. You'll never give up any sin or weight or weakness you don't want to. Laying aside simply means that you renounce or you put off. But you can't do that unless you know that you should not do that. In other words, you won't put off anything as a Christian unless you're convinced that it's something God is against or that you should put off. If you're living in a certain way and you don't know necessarily, you're not convicted about some things in your life that is wrong, it's hard for you to just put it off and not do it. Now, I've seen a movement that people tried that. They did it because other people did it. They tried to live on other people's convictions. They tried to follow what other people were convicted by, and they thought, well, it must be right because they're doing it, so they tried it too. Only 20 years later to be back where they were. Nothing's really changed. We tried that. We tried this. We tried that. We got convicted in the early days. We changed our clothing. Remember that? Women begin to be convicted about it. They said they were. They said they were. And they wore head coverings because they said they were convicted about that. They said they were. I suspect a lot of people did it because they saw prominent people do it, and therefore it must be right, and they did it. Something was wrong because they let go of it. See, a lot of people try to make Christianity into something that's popular or that other people do, and if they do what's popular or what other people do, they'll be all right without having personal convictions. Personal convictions is when God confronts you about things in your life that you should or should not do, whether anybody else is doing it or not. It's what he says to you. Now, when he shows you things in your life that truly are a hindrance to you living this life, then the next thing that the Spirit of God <laughs> compels you to do is to lay it aside, get rid of it, renounce it, throw it away. Listen to these words in Ephesians 4 and 22, that you lay aside, that you put off concerning the former manner of life, the old man which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust. Wherefore, put away lying, this is verse 25, put away lying and speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Put off all that old stuff. We used to lie. We used to steal. 
And God knows we're masters at excuse making. Quit doing that. Just admit that you're wrong. When you and God run into each other and the word plainly says this, quit trying to make it to be something else. Self's got to go to the cross and die. God has confronted you and given you an opportunity to grow, to make a wonderful adjustment in your life. But all oh, sin has a mastery over a lot of people. Notice here the first thing he said, there's two things here, every weight and the sin. Every weight. What would you think a weight is? Well, in the race picture, you could not imagine a runner going into the weight room before the race starts and picking up two 15-pound dumbbells. Now, you might not, oh, 15 pounds isn't much. Walk a mile with it. Or hold it like this and, and walk a half a mile. And then we'll come and get you. Okay, you younger ones, no problem. All right. Can you imagine a guy getting ready to run a race or a girl, picking up these weights and walking out there to the starting line and getting ready to run? And God says, you can't win carrying that. He didn't say you couldn't start the race and run a certain distance, but you can't win carrying that weight. You got to get rid of them. You got to let go of that stuff. You got to drop it and let go because you see the word weight means a hindrance, an impediment, an encumbrance, something that is against you. Oh, you love it, you like it, you bought, paid a lot for it, or spent a lot of time getting it, whatever the weight happens to be in your life, but it's a preventive. It keeps you from running this race on God's terms. Now you can say, well, at least I'm running. That doesn't matter much. Many start, not everybody finishes. Jesus said you must endure the first mile. You got to endure the whole race. You got to endure to the very end. You, it's not who starts, it's who finishes. Starting is wonderful because you got to start to finish. But you can't run carrying all these weights. You can't run with a 20-pound backpack on your back because of these things I just can't get rid of. Huh. Things we can't get rid of. What are things that people can't get rid of? Things that hinder you. Things that follow you every day and plague you. They suppress you. What are these? What could it be? What about a simple weight of unforgiveness? She thought I was going to talk about food habits and stuff like that. <laughs> Maybe TV or something, you know, it's weights of things that keep. But let's go deeper. Now, what about unforgiveness? Has anybody in this room ever been done wrong at least once? Have you ever had a moment in your life when somebody did you wrong? Has a husband ever found out his wife cheated on him? Has a wife ever found out that her husband cheated on her? And depending on your mental game or your inward constitution, you either fall apart, you get angry and mad, you either weep or cry or kill. But there's some kind of a devastating, in the spirit world, some kind of pressure that comes upon a person that is designed to destroy it. Unforgiveness will keep you out of heaven. If you cannot forgive anybody anything, 
neither does God say he would forgive you. Did you know that? Well, let me just point it out. Jesus said, what things soever you desire, when you pray, you've heard that a lot, haven't you? Believe that you'll receive them and you shall have them. That's Mark eleven twenty four. 24. Well, Mark eleven twenty five 25 says, and when you stand praying, forgive. The one thing he points out is the one great reason why prayers are not answered. When you stand praying, forgive. For if you will not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive you. It doesn't matter how much you pray then because it isn't going to work. Remember what Jesus said in what we call the Lord's Prayer, Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and forgive us our trespasses as. What if we don't forgive others? But then we're not forgiven. Oh, but you don't know the, the depth of the pain that I experienced. I mean, somebody broke in my house, ruined my grandmother's antiques just trashed the house and tore the place all to pieces, stole my grandpa's gun and my kid's new bicycle and just, I hope they die and I hope they perish. Well, then that's a lot of unforgiveness. When we tell stories about people who hurt us in the past, you're still in unforgiveness. You've never forgiven. You've never forgiven them. You're still seething with the pain of 40 years ago, 30 years ago, or an hour ago. Because you might have to work through some things, but you can overcome it. Who in here hadn't been wronged? I remember a guy told me once he would never forgive the Red Cross because they didn't give his father's blood whenever he was dying and the man died. And he said, I can't forgive him. Well, you're going to have to if you want to go to heaven. You want to go to heaven? Well, you got to do that. Your unforgiveness is a weight. It's hanging on you as something that will keep you from running the race. And while you can get over it for that time when it's not an issue, here comes a sermon. Here comes a sermon and God speaks to you about your unforgiveness. And the whole thing comes back up and you sit there in opposition to the preacher and the message. I, you don't understand. You think it's so easy to sit up and so flippantly talk about the pain of my past. I've been hurt, brother. Huh. Isn't it amazing? Jesus never said anything like that. In fact, to the very people that killed him and took his life, he said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. If they knew who I was and what I'm about, they'd be on their faces. But they don't know that. There's a lot of bitterness of spirit in a lot of people because of the hurts of their past. A mother, a father, an affair, a teacher in a school, boyfriend, girlfriend, breakups. How foolish that is because people quit coming to church. And I think the only reason you came to church is because I got a boyfriend. And the moment you had a problem with that, I ain't going back to church. If he's going to be there, then the devil has made a fool out of you. You should have listened to what we said about all that boyfriend-girlfriend stuff. Oh, no. I'm above that. I can tell. Unforgiveness. 
you've got to forgive. I don't care what somebody did to you. You can't let unforgiveness ruin your mind or your marriage. You can't let unforgiveness affect your children or affect your relationship with God because it can. It absolutely can and it does. How about grief? It was an accident. Your most cherished loved one was taken there from you and now you don't have that and you're devastated. And I don't care what wonderful thing God says and how wonderful your experience coming to the Lord was, it seems like, it seems like with some people, grief just destroys their life. They can't get over it. They can't even run the race. They drop, they just fall. In my young years in Indiana growing up, there was this family in town, a prominent family, very well known, well named, very nice family, had a business. They had two children, a boy that was a little older than me, a couple years, and they had a daughter, which was a couple years younger than me. Good reputation, everything. Well, the daughter, when I was just in college, the daughter was killed in a car wreck. Tragic. And she was the apple of these people's eyes. And after this girl died, that family was so grieved, they went into seclusion and died. Just died. They hung on for a few years and then they never recovered, never recovered, never got over it. Wouldn't touch her room, the picture in her room, and they just wept before the picture all the time. Never got over it. Now grief is a difficult thing. Losing a loved one is very hard. Would never make light of that. The Bible tells us there's a time to grieve. But you got a race to be run which is bigger than whatever tragedies ever happened in your life or to you. Whatever has gone on, you have got to overcome that and you've got to get above that. It is a sickness that took somebody's life. You watch somebody die. And it's just tragic, tragic. Somebody that seemed to have so much to offer and what a terrible thing for this person to go, what are we going to do now? And, oh, I can't make it without an oh. And, and your life goes backwards instead of forwards. And I don't know if you've ever thought about it before, but that can be a weight in your life because it's a preventive. It keeps you from going on. You do well, you have those good days, and you go to church and somebody talks about grief about somebody died and the devil brings the whole scenario back in your mind and there you are sitting in church and you break down again because you can't stand anything that has to do with death and dying. Nobody can teach you because you break down. You can't get through all of that anymore. And it's a tragic thing. It's a weight. What about the weight of anxiety, stress, worry? What about people who lost a lot of money in the stock market a little while back? People who lost their job or found out that their life savings, one man over two or three million dollars invested with some Ponzi scheme and <laughs> lost everything, lost it all in their 60s and said, we gotta go back to work. Well, that's terrible. We can smile about that, but if you were in their feet, you wouldn't smile. Because for them, they're devastated. 
for everything we've worked so hard to get and everything we wanted and we were finally realizing a, a time of, of enjoying life at the end here and it is all gone. And apparently they never heard there's something more important than the joy of this life. It's the joy of the one coming. That you've got to be willing to give up anything that's in the way between you and there. If it's your career, your investments, your plans and your schemes to get somewhere, if it's in the way, you've got to give it up. You've got to lay it aside. Oh, you don't understand. I'm talking about thousands. No, you don't understand. I'm talking about eternity. You've got to make up your mind. You want bucks or you want eternity? You can't take it with you. I've been to rich people's funerals. I never did look in a casket. I don't much do that anymore, but I am looking in a casket for years now. The ones I did look in, the well-to-do people, you know, I didn't do this, but I didn't see any money. You didn't ask the funeral man to raise up the bottom half of the casket, see if his money's in there. Can't take it with you. For the sake of his money, he gave up heaven. And when he died, whatever happens, the moment you die in this life, there's obviously a, a very real next thing that happens right away. If it's not God you're facing, what a fool you were in this life. You gave it all up to have fun. Drugs and sex and cool and places and things. And when you die, and a lot of people that do that die early and die young, they don't live out, as the Bible says, half their days. And then this awful other side of the veil, it's dark and it's hot. And you screams and all of that. It's not beautiful lights and people singing, it's just the opposite. Just the opposite. Because you couldn't lay aside trash Foolish pleasures, foolish desires in this life to get over to the next one. Maybe that's what the Bible means when it says every weight, everything that impedes your walk, everything that God says you've got to let go of. Some people can't. They just can't do it. And then secondly, there's a sin that doth so easily beset us. Now, I think the sin that doth so easily beset us is not talking about some particular weak sin in your life. We all have them. Some don't have a certain sin. Some do have a certain sin. But, I mean, the same sins. But there is a sin. I think there is a specific sin. The article, the, says the sin that doth so easily beset us. What do you suppose it is? Is there one particular fault that all mankind has, that is common to all. Not everybody has a problem with pornography or lust or drinking or stealing or lying or cheating. But there is a sin that really easily besets multitudes of people. We identify the word beset because that doth so easily beset us is one Greek word. It implies entangled, to be woven in. It's like there is something that comes into your life and so entwines itself in your life. In definition of this word, it says to entangle so as to render escape difficult. In other words, you have to really 
with effort work at it to escape this particular sin. This particular sin has such a hold on everybody, on people, that most people cannot escape it. Some do. Some do. There's always some, but not everybody can because they're entangled in the effect of what a sin does when you are beset, entangled with this particular sin because he spoke of it that way, the sin that does so easily beset us. Well, what is this sin? It's quitting. It's quitting. Q-U-I-T-T-I-G, quitting. It's just letting go. Giving in to pressure. Instead of saying yes to God, you say no to God. Besetting sins are the reasons we have so many excuses. We know we're wrong. We don't want to just admit we're wrong, so we make excuses. We did not because. We did something else because. But you still quit. You still backed off. You still gave up. You still have had something else to be the first thing you seek in your life instead of God. Notice the two things that are required here. The sin that does so easily beset us. You've got to have patience, don't you? In verse 1, and run with patience the race that is set before us. You see the word endured in verse 2? Is the word endure in verse 3? Okay, here's the picture. The writer of Hebrews. Chapter 11 shows you all the wonderful testimonies of people who used their faith and accomplished and overcame, survived whatever, all the different things. All these witnesses are these people who testify to us about what their faith can do. So he says in verse 1, seeing that we are surrounded with such a group of accomplished people who made it by faith, in order for us to do that, we must lay aside every weight, any encumbrance, and this sin which does so easily beset us. And we've got to run with patience the race that is set before us. Now consider Jesus. And consider Jesus, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured. Endured. It's the same word. One is a noun, one is a verb. Hupomani, hupomino. Same thing. Who endured. To endure, to me it's a picture word. It's one who steadfastly holds up. Doesn't let go. Doesn't give in but holds on. What's he hold up? His faith. What you believe. What you believe. Do you believe that he will supply you need? Do you believe that he will? Do you believe he will? Do you believe? Do you believe? Do you believe? Well, it's when your faith is put to the test that you've got to hold it up. Because if you say you believe, and then, I don't know about that, and then you let go of it, that there was no endurance here. If there's no endurance, there'll never be any perfection. You'll never arrive at the end of your life the way you should. Because the work that God's going to do is while you're enduring. That's why trials are to be understood. So you can rejoice knowing that the testing of your faith and so forth. Turn to Hebrews 10. Let me lead up to this. Hebrews 10. These are sober verses here. They really are. They're not easy verses. They're sobering verses. 
Verse 35. Cast not away, therefore, your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. You see that? You will get something you really are glad you got if you don't lose your confidence, which is what faith does. So here's what we're talking about. Verse 36. For you have need of patience. That's our word, hupomone, or endurance. You have need of endurance, that after you have done the will of God, notice, you might receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come and will not tarry. Now, the just shall live by faith. But if any man draw back or withdraw, my soul, God says, shall have no pleasure in him. Don't think you reach the other side and God says, well, you tried good. He said, my soul, if you withdraw, shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back into perdition, but of them who believe to the saving of the soul. Now, the four things here, one is reward, second one is endurance, thirdly is drawing back, and fourthly is perdition. I want to look at those things briefly. We know, first of all, there is a reward. There is laid up for us in heaven, Peter writes, a reward. Something that is so great that life on the other side is new every morning. Eye hath not seen, mind has not dreamed up what God has laid up in store for them that love him. It's beyond. When you try to get into that, you're way over your head. And so there is a reward. Secondly, it's patience. Let us, in verse 35, you have need of patience, endurance. It's a common word as it relates to the Christian and the character and the life. Let us run with endurance. Not just run. Don't just say, well, I got me some new Nikes and I'm going to run today. The race is about running to win. But you can't win unless you endure because it is a struggle. And the hills are getting higher the longer the race runs. And there's valleys and there's creeks and there's bushes and there's flat. It's a race that you've got to run, that your body says to quit. Your flesh says stop. Your thing called <laughs> self says it. you don't have to do this to go to heaven. Remember what the preacher said? Hold up your hand Sunday morning and you go to heaven. You don't have to do this. Well, I don't know why we're reading this, if that's true, but I'm going to read it anyway. But you have need of patience, endurance, so that after you've done the will of God, if you've even gotten that far, you can't do His will if you don't know what it is. And if you know what it is, you have to do it. And in order to do it, you have to endure all your desire to not do it. And verse 38, now the just shall live by faith. But he said, if any man draws back, I know you're not interested in Greek words, but the word hupostello, in one dictionary, it means to cower or to shrink from fear. And a lot of people, I think, have that. That's a mindset. I don't think I can do it. Well, it's too hard, too far. I just can't do it. It's, you know, I, I'm afraid I won't make it. Or I'm, you know, I don't, I'd rather just something else. But hupostello simply means to withdraw. It's a conscious decision that you make not to continue this way. That's why you back off. 
eventually backslide and then you make excuses as to why, well, I'm not that here. I'm not, and you keep making excuses while your conscience condemns you. He that knoweth to do good. Grace is a wonderful thing, but you can frustrate it. Your conscience can be seared to where you believe your excuses are as much right as what God said. It's a conscious decision that you make not to continue in his way. That's what drawing back means. And this is God's response to it. But we are not of them that draw back into perdition. Judas was called the son of perdition. Some people think, well, you just draw back, you lose your rewards and so forth. It's more than that. If you look up the word perdition in Strong's Concordance, follow the numbers and all the verses, it means destruction. The broad way, Jesus said, leads to destruction. Same word as perdition. It leads to destruction. It's a terrible thing, folks, for God so graciously to make possible our salvation and reveal how he did that in very graphic terms about the crucifixion of Jesus and the pain and the agony and the suffering and the cost for people who didn't care a thing about God. And then for God to begin to affect individuals' hearts in which it did matter what Jesus did, in which the heart does become broken, in which the heart does become contrite, and it bows before God, and before you is a loving Savior's death on your behalf so that you can live. And it has such meaning to you that you gladly take up your cross out of love for God and begin to live this life. And yes, you struggle along the way. And yes, there are moments in, in which you think, uh, everybody does me wrong. Of course they do. Why wouldn't the devil do you wrong? Well, it's so hard. Well, of course it's hard. You think God gives you training wheels on this bike? This is a man's walk. It's an adult encounter. It's not for children. It's for those that are growing up. And growing up means grown-up decisions. Maturity. And you've got to fight. And you can't fight if you don't hold fast. James 1. Go over to the right. One book. James chapter 1. My brethren, verse 2. Count it all too much. Count it all not right. Say, this is not fair. Say that. No. Count it all joy when you encounter diverse kinds of trials. Divers means various, different kinds of trials, testings. I'm not talking about judgment here. I'm talking about trials, testings. You're tested because you believe something, the trial of your faith. You're not just saying, well, I'm going through another one today. What are you believing today? Well, I don't know what I'm believing. Well, you're not going through anything yet. But it's when you set yourself to believe God that the devil challenges you. Why wouldn't he challenge you? How does he know what you believe? How would the devil know what you believe? Now, God knows because he knows all things, but how would the devil know? So you're given a challenge. You're given faith, and here comes a challenge. Count it all joy when you fall into divers kinds of shakenings. 
and difficulties and people harassing you and talking about you and calling you evil like they did Jesus. It ain't fair. Well, of course it's not fair. But he said, count it what? Joy. <laughs> Joy, I just lost everything. Maybe you shouldn't have had it so much the way you got it. Oh, excuse me. Maybe your pursuit wasn't what he wanted you to do and what you got wasn't the way he wanted you to get it and you lost it all. Now you're blaming him for it. Count it all joy, brother. Count it all joy. Joy. My wife, my husband, my children, my parents, the teacher at school, the preacher. Count it all joy. Knowing this that this divinely arranged difficulty is set before you in order that you may exercise yourself with steadfastness and being unmovable and that you will not let go of what you believe no matter what. God knows how strong you are. He won't let this thing be bigger than you are. He'll give you a way to bear this. You got no excuses for not enduring. None. Zero. We have no excuses. We've been given a way to walk that not everybody's given. And we complain. And we grumble. And we just don't want to set ourselves in such a way that I believe God wants me to live this way. I believe I was healed at the cross. Everything in my body points to dying and death and weakness and it ain't going to work. I'm going to count on God to do this. I remember the night I was dancing in the kitchen with Judy. This fever was just convulsing in my arms, and you know, doing, and I'm dancing, singing, "This joy, His joy," because that's what the Bible said. Feeling feelings, whew, my flesh was saying, "Thou art a fool. Your religion has betrayed you. You're going to lose a child. You're going to jail, and you have messed up your whole life." And I'm saying in this joy, his joy. Now, I wouldn't tell that story if it didn't work. It did work. She recovered, drank two big glasses of morning's juice, and I don't even know if she's ever had a fever since. I just know that there were times that you put to a test, and you just think it's not fair, it's not right. But there are some people that this word has just found a bottom. And at the bottom, it takes root, and it just gets a hold of a person, and they won't let go of it. That's what endurance is. I won't let go of this, not for you, not for them, not for anything. There is a prize set before me that's worth more than all of you all, all of that, all of this, and all the stuff. There's something that is worth my very best. I can't give any more than that. But there's something out there that's worth all of that. And man, that's found away in my heart. Is that found its bottom where you put the roots down? You see, when it happens, you do endure and you do become steadfast and you do hold on and you do rejoice. Because what does he wind up saying? Knowing this, the testing of your faith worketh. Worketh what? Endure steadfastness. The testing of what you believe is what brings forth, works, steadfastness. And let this steadfastness have its perfect work. In other words, something is going on, isn't it? Yeah. 
Is there a perfecting work that is taking place while I am enduring? God is doing something deep. A work of perfection, of cleansing. The refiner is blowing his fiery trial on my life. The ore is being refined. We want pure gold, not rejected silver. God wants pure gold that he can see his own reflection in them as he looks at them. It takes fire. It takes trials and testings. Because the purpose of these testings is to refine you. I have found in the faith camp in my past and boy, the many places I've been and different attitudes and ideas that people have had that I've talked to, one thing to distinguish us from the other camp out west, the faith camp, is trials. One man said, Jesus had all my trials for me. That's an ignorant statement because you need to be purged and you need to be refined. He didn't. He was already pure. He had to go through this to demonstrate that he was willing to be the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, and he did. You have to go through this to be cleansed from all the junk and the stuff in your life. There comes a day in which you will be without spot, wrinkle, or any such thing. A glorious church full of Jesus Christ. That's when he comes. And it's coming. Believe it or not, it's coming. Look for the word to get intense. I pray for fire. I do. God knows I pray for fire. I love to kiss everybody. Isn't that a wonderful little message this morning about love? But then I preach on love. What is it all about? You better obey God. That's what love is. You think it's right to preach like that? Turn to the book of Jude. Jude, chapter 1. Verse 21, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life, because that's what's going to bring us through. And of some, have compassion. Be compassionate towards some who are doubting. That's what he means. Those that are struggling with doubt, just struggling. You know, the ones who know that you're right, making that decision to cross over, don't condemn these people. They're in the process. The transition from the old to the new is taking place. Make a difference or have compassion on those that are down. Now, verse 23, and others save with what? Well, that's a far cry from a gushy sugar stick, isn't it? We used to call sugar sticks your little light sermons that everybody liked and came back to hear you again, a sugar stick. That's a far cry from a sugar stick. And some save with fear pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment that is spotted by the flesh. Save some with fear. Does that mean that your message causes a fearful response to a loving God? Is the fear of God still a thing that is current in the church? I'm not talking about the terror of God, but the attitude towards God that compels you to surrender all because you know in the end, he's the one you face. And what a wonderful thing he did. He showed it to you how much he loves you. He says, now, don't play games with me. And listen, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, 
I don't care where you go to church, what you've heard, whatever you sow, you reap. Now, loving God has brought you to a place where you can do all things through Christ. Now, surrender your will and your heart and everything to him and have it in your mind that I will not forsake the Lord. I will not give up. And when the enemy comes in like a flood, God said, no temptation has taken me, but such as common man, God's faith will not allow me to be tempted up with his but he will provide a way of escape, so I'm going to hold on. I love you, Lord. I want your approval in my life. I've never seen you, but I believe that you are, and I'm going to hold fast as though your word in the end prevails. That's the difference. Now go back. See, in James 1, this is how your Christian character is perfected. This is how God does the work in you that he's going to do. Listen to these words. It's also how you'll bear fruit in this life. I'm going to read it for you from Luke 8, 15. But that on the good ground are they which in an honest and good heart, having heard the word, keep it and bring forth fruit with patience, with endurance. God bears fruit. What fruit are we talking about? Listen, the greatest fruit is a manifestation of Christ in you. His love, his joy, his peace, his gentleness, his kindness, his faith, it all comes out when the old man dies. The more you die, the more he lives. He must increase, I must decrease. So then, in closing this morning, the sin which will disqualify us, whoever, and will ruin so many people's lives is the sin of unwillingness to endure or overcome. The sin of an unwillingness to endure or overcome. It means you don't trust God because you're not sure to work, you're afraid you're gonna die, and so you back off, you withdraw, you cower, you draw back. And so you cannot be what God wants you to be. Listen at these words. Sermon on the Mount again, Matthew 7, 13. Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And sadly, many there be which go in thereat. Why? Why do so many choose a way that they know is not the right way? Because that's where they are. Jesus went on to say, because straight is the gate and narrow is the way which leads to life, and few there be that find it. Few. What would be a few in this congregation? Or maybe we're the few of all the many. I don't know. Listen to what Luke said. Luke wrote this. One of the apostles said, then said one unto him, Lord, are there few that be saved? And he said unto them, strive to enter in at the narrow gate. For many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in and will not be able. That is a solemn verse of scripture from Jesus Christ. Many will seek, not assume, seek. Many will seek to enter in, but will not be able. You know why? Waits entanglements, besetting sins, that quitting spirit, I can't do it. And they don't make it. They ran for a long time. They just didn't run until the race is over. Finally, go back to Hebrews 12 and I'm gonna close. He said in verse two and verse three, looking unto Jesus in verse two 
and consider him in verse 3. We'll end by saying this. If we're going to find the joy that is set before us, if we're really going to endure the cross, if we're going to make it, we will have to focus on Jesus. Listen to me. You will always in this life reach the end of what you got, and he must take over in order for you to make it. Remember we said the other day, after you have suffered for a while, he, Jesus, in 1 Peter 1, he will perfect, confirm, settle, strengthen, and so forth you. He is the one who will make you strong and steadfast. He tells you to do it. You do what you can. But there's a point at which he has to finish this thing for you. That's why you're going to be without spot, wrinkle, or any such thing, because he's going to finish the work that he started. You're going to make it this morning by the grace, the favor, and the assistance of God. You will make it because of that. But he said in verse 3, Consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your mind. Now, one more time, and then we'll close. One more time. Verse 5. This is what a loving Savior does to needy people like us. He corrects us. He teaches us. He disciplines us. We call that in the Bible chastisement. Verse 5, Hebrews 12. And have you forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children? My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son he receiveth. If, there it is, if you don't quit, if you endure, that's what this is all about. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is he of whom this father chasteneth not? But if you be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, and you are bastards and not sons. And verse 11. Now no chastening for the present seems to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward, it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto those who are exercised thereby. Isn't that good? Chastening seems to be unfair. God has led you to a dry place in your life. Things are happening to you that aren't happening to other people. This doesn't seem to be fair. You're in your race. You're not in their race. You're in your race. The direction you're going to go in in your life is not to be patterned by the direction others go. It's God showing you what he wants you to do. And some of the dark things that come in your life, some of the difficulties, the problems, you find yourself angry and you're mad. You get frustrated. You go to church. It ain't fair. Now he's hitting on me, beating on me again. Because God is telling you to listen to me. Shh. Take that stuff you've been saying to the cross. Take it to the cross. If you don't carry a cross, you ain't going to make it. You've got to give up all this trash. You've got to lay this stuff aside. You've got to take God at his word. You hold on to it and don't let go of it. You're not going to go through this forever. It doesn't last the rest of your life. There's going to be an end to this. But for right now, you've got to learn something. And when you do, and your eyes are opened, no wonder James says, count it all joy when you fall in the diver's trial. Knowing 
knowing something, oh, praise God. And then you find this joy comes out. And then there's a peace. Like he said in Romans 15, 13, there's joy and peace in believing. Well, of course there is. And the next thing you know, here's a person who always is on the same page all the time. Peace, joy, yeah. Well, they don't have any problems. They have problems every day. They just don't act like it. They act like God is true and the devil's a lie. Amen. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields a peaceable fruit of righteousness. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, I ask you to confirm your word to your people. These are not my people. They're your people, Lord. I ask you to confirm to their hearts the truth of this word. Unfold unto them the depth and the meaning of this word. May it find a lodging place in these people's hearts where it can take root so that they can understand what's being said and begin to see that they're in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. That God has sent the rod of his power out. That we can do all things through Christ. I want to thank you, Lord, that the work that you've started, you really will finish. We are grateful, we are thankful this morning that you've chosen us to be a part of that work. And we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Would you stand to your feet?
Hallelujah. Glory to God. Hallelujah. Glory to God. Hallelujah. Praise be to God.